0: From Chester, here is King, the more people try to, you know, mask, you know, their dealings with him, it, it it clearly shows that they have something to hide. He, he wound up telling their lies, really. but that's what boxing does, though. They take good people and they have no problems tarnishing their reputation for the sake of, you know, hiding in plain sight.
1: I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World. A podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's the global superpower who have KO'd the Kinahan Mafia with sanctions which have caused chaos for the mob. But when did the name Kinahan start coming on the radar in the United States? And was it a brazen move into top end boxing that sealed their fate? As Tyson Fury prepares to step into the ring at Wembley Stadium to fight for his WBC heavyweight title amid a storm of controversy, I'm talking with Jake Donovan, senior writer of BoxingScene.com. He tells me how Daniel Kinahan managed to gain a foothold at the very top of US boxing while American law enforcement worked away in the background to bring down his family mafia. We discuss the slowness of the sport and its watchdogs to protect itself from organised crime. And we consider the millions of dollars that wash around promoters, managers and even crime bosses each time a punch is thrown. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Well, start by telling me your your opinions about Tyson Fury and how this fight is going ahead tonight and, um, you know, how the whole thing has been handled. Um, it's
0: it very, the, the whole thing has been handled very interestingly. So I, what I find strange is Bob Arum, the, you know, the Hall of Fame promoter who signed Tyson Fury in 2019, he's all of a sudden been very forthcoming. You know, he's an attorney, he knows the U.S. laws, he knows, you know, the... the the gravity of the situation, you know, with, you know, once the treasury department gets involved, it's like, that's game over for him. So I understand his willingness to cooperate. My problem is Bob Arum, Frank Warren, and Tyson Fury are essentially telling three different versions of their truth. So you don't, you know, we, we can't call any of them a liar without, you know, repercussions, but we don't know which version to believe. Um, The thing I've told people too, it's like, I understand anyone who's done business with Daniel Kinahan, it's okay to say, "Okay, we've done business with them. We understand what's going on. We are no longer doing business." That should be the across-the-board answer from everyone. But instead, the more people try to, you know, mask, you know, their dealings with them, it, it it clearly shows that they have something to hide. So, and there's still a lot of unanswered questions going into tonight's. We should be talking about the fight, but we have to talk about everything else but the fight itself.
1: Everything that's happened. Bob Arum comes across as, you know, as an, as a non boxing fan as such i mean i my my knowledge of boxing is purely because i cover organized crime which is a sad thing to say maybe but um bob arum comes across as slightly nutty
0: yes absolutely he's um this has been on his radar for years and he was you know so just you know rewinding back 2020 was really the point where if you wanted to ignore daniel kenahan's place in the sport when Tyson Fury went on record saying Daniel Kinahan was the one responsible for putting together the fight with him and Anthony Joshua, that was the point where every writer should have been like, who is this guy? Why is he involved in the sport? Bob Arum has defended him. Um, everyone at top rank has defended him. Tyson Fury has defended him. Nearly 300 fighters under under MTK Global has has defended this guy. Plenty of boxing insiders of all you know said nothing but good. Writers had been on record talking about mm. it. The, the, the fact that very few writers have even touched this story up until two weeks ago, like I have, I did like a search of a bunch of writers, you know, the top writers in the sport, just to see if they even mentioned the name Kenahan, none have, there was like a list of at least 20 who haven't mentioned his name up until Monday, but now all of a sudden, because, you know, Bob Aram is on record cooperating with the government. Now it's okay to, you know, to, to do your job and report on this guy. It's, it's just very strange. So, but that's the, unfortunately the power that people like Bob Arum and other promoters have in this sport, you know, reporters feel compelled to, you know, follow their lead because that's their source for, you know, breaking news, finding out when fights are happening and, you know, other stuff that they feel is relevant to their job, but they don't want to upset their master. So now that Bob is talking, everyone else feels it's okay.
1: It's somewhat slightly the same in crime, not to be too harsh on boxing journalists, because, you know, there are certain places that you have to kind of get information from. I mean, you can't do the job without that. And is that the power that Bob Arum has? And do you think it was his backing of Daniel Kinahan that sort of stopped maybe the American media digging a little bit?
0: Um, I think it's a part, kind of laziness as well. It just seems like over here we're we're just content with you know finding out what fights are happening, and I I always I'm, it's a sly joke, but I feel like we're more concerned with who's failing drug tests than like who's actually who's literally supplying drugs. So you we're always finding out you know this guy tested positive for steroids, and that becomes a big story. It's like well why aren't we fl- you know we don't even know like how they're getting the you know the steroids. Never mind you know actual drug dealers infiltrating the sport. So I, it's just very strange. It's like it really takes the reporting out because we're not actually reporting. We're just kind of regurgitating what promoters want us to, you know, to put out there. So what's
1: boxing like in the U.S.? I mean, is, did it pass its glory days and is it back again? It's it's very Vegas. It's very entertaining. And it's it's, you know, it's as much a show as anything, isn't it?
0: It is. Um, As far as, like, it's not a mainstream sport anymore. It's trying it. So I will say there have been more really, really good, two great fights in the past year or so, really since the pandemic. I say there's been more great fights, you know, in in the past two years than there had been in quite a long time. It's like we have an absolutely loaded schedule. The problem is we're such an insular, you know, Market. nobody is really paying attention outside of boxing fans, which is a shame because there are so many great fights coming up. Like even next weekend, you know, with a historical event for women's boxing with Katie Taylor and um, Amanda Serrano. Katie Taylor is like the one person I keep thinking of with all the stuff with Daniel you know, Kenhan. It's like my, you know, pot of gold at the end of this rainbow is I want to see Katie be able to fight in Ireland again one day because it's a direct link to her not being. She's the most popular athlete at least the most popular boxer, if not the most popular athlete in Ireland, and she can't even fight at home. So I hope that, you know, some, that, that kind of resolution comes from all of this. Mm. So what
1: was your first sort of introduction to Daniel Kinahan, probably to MTK, I imagine, was it?
0: So uh, I've been writing for about 20 years. I took a break around 2017. I just got burnt out. Plus, I wasn't making as much money as I needed to to, you know, make a living. So I, quote unquote, got a real job. Um, when I came back around late 2018, um, people started talking like all the MTK and, you know, can, like all I ever knew about and my only association with MTK was that it was a Matthew Macklin company. I, the only thing I knew about Matthew Macklin was he was a middleweight contender. He fought Gennady Golovkin. He fought, I believe, three or four times for the middleweight title. But I, I never really you know, knew about, you know, the investments behind it. And I, I had people, you know, mention his name. So I started asking, like, what do you know about this guy? And then like the floodgates opened. And then um, I actually have a long lost cousin in Ireland. He lives in, uh, I'm not going to say where he lives, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I just okay. happen to casually, uh, you know, he doesn't follow boxing, but he knows who Katie Taylor. is. He doesn't necessarily follow crime, but he knows who Daniel Kennan is. So he started telling me just all the effects that he had. So, um, And the fact that it just went so underreported over here, I, I kind of, I'm like, well, someone has to put the story out there. Then when Fury went public with, you know, the whole Anthony Joshua thing, I'm like, all right, now we have to write about it. I wrote my story. I think at the time I was the only U S based writer to even mention him. Alan Dawson now lives over here. He's done a fantastic job with the insider. So, um, but I, I just found it bizarre that like, nobody just seemed to care. They, they focused more on when Fury Joshua was going to be made than the guy who, you know, was named as being responsible for making the fight.
1: So as a journalist, you, you did your work, you went and you made inquiries or whatever, but, um, as a, as a boxing journalist in the US, was that just an enormous story? You felt that this was a huge story, that this guy, Daniel Kinahan, I suppose not sanctioned at that point by the US in the same way he has been in the last week. He's now, people are freer to talk about him, I suppose. But there was that backup there, you know, the naming of him in the high court, the naming of the Kinahan Organised Crime Gang by Europol. There was a list of, of sort of... Um, things that we were reliant on as a media to back up what we were saying about him. And obviously, the crime journalists had a lot more information than that. But for you, was it an amazing, was it an, Was it a national story in the U.S.?
0: It should have been. I felt like it just never really caught fire. It seems like, you know, certain people caught wind of it and then they started asking questions like, how come this isn't more of a story in boxing? And the sad part of boxing is, is like, well, it's always synonymous with corruption. So people are just like, well, that's just, you know, that's just part of the sport. So we're going to live with it. Um, I, I think just so many reporters were willing to live with, you know, Bob Aram's version of the truth, Eddie Hearn's version, you know, people who, you know, defended the guy or just, you know, kept, they said, well, we work with him. We don't know what he does. They were just, I, I think a lot of reporters, I don't know if they were scared or just too lazy to just dig in and really find out the truth because I, I guess they knew it would have serious repercussions on the sport. And obviously, too, without, you know, the backing of like, you know, the U.S., the Treasury Department, DEA, it's like, if it's unfounded, then, you know, we're the ones who are in trouble. So I I really, I depended on, you know, especially, you know, incredible reporters like yourself and, you know, other journalists, you know, to just, you know, get my facts straight. Then I would check in, you know, check in with my sources. So yeah. That, that yeah, like once you start connecting the dots, then you feel comfortable writing the story. It just amazed me that for you know at least two years, nobody felt comfortable touching. This.
1: And was was that moment that Tyson Fury sort of called him out as the as the fixer of this thing? Did they did MTK already have a number of gyms? When had they first moved into the US? Because I think from memory, they had opened gyms around the Mexican border somewhere.
0: Yeah, they were looking to do, yeah, in Mexico, uh, they were trying to open up a gym in Tucson, Arizona. I don't believe that ever took place. But it was, I want to say around 2019, 2020, they really started focusing on the the U.S. market. Um, I'm not going to say it was directly tied to Tyson Fury signing with Top Rank, but shortly thereafter, I think that kind of opened the door for MTK to start, you know, looking around to see where they could set up shop in, in the U.S. Like, especially after the pandemic, they really started doing a lot of shows. Even before then, I know. They did a show in Philly, um, you know, it was always tied through top rank or through matchroom, but it was, you know, by and large, an MTK show.
1: So in, in, in a way, they didn't do their traditional in the States. They kind of went in big because in other in other countries, they kind of went in, opened a number of gyms, signed some boxers and that kind of thing. Whereas in the US, they just went straight for the jugular. They went straight for the top with Aram.
0: Yeah, they did. They, they started signing a few fighters with Top Rank, uh, especially with Go- Golden Boy was the one company they really seemed to uh, infiltrate. For the lack of a better term, like Golden Boy described it that way. Like, like one day they just found out all these, you know, they had like six or seven fighters all of a sudden signed you know, signed to um to MTK, not necessarily to Kennehan. None have ever named him, but they've all said to MTK and to separately to manager Rick Meridian who, you know, Rick told me he now has these fighters. They're a little, well, obviously nobody's with MTK, but he told me this before MTK closed shop, but, um, mm. that, that was like a real trend for a while. It was, um, I, these names probably don't mean anything. So even Virgil Ortiz, Joseph Diaz, they're all either top contenders or former champions. These were the guys they were signing a lot of undefeated prospects. Uh, they signed Jamel Herring top Bob Arum is the one who claimed that they, that Daniel Canahan advises or at least advise Terrence Crawford, who's one of the best fighters in the world. He, you know, you know, he obviously has Tyson Fury, he has mm. Josh Taylor. So yeah, he, he put together quite a collection and, you know, really in like three, maybe three or four years. So and Fury seemed like the big key. Once he, he came back to the sport, that's when like MTK really started gaining ground.
1: Now Sandra Vaughn at one point, um, when she came out to talk about Daniel Kinnan, having initially denied it anything to do with MTK since he sold it. She then came out and around the time of the Panorama documentary, and she said, well, actually, we do know him really well. And he's a very good friend of mine. And I take advice from him, even though he's much younger than me. And she said that um, he was an advisor to a lot of MTK boxers. But that didn't mean he was making any money, she said. She was essentially saying that Kinahan was doing all this for free because he was so interested in MTK getting on. She said he was the person who had introduced uh, MTK to Bob Arum. Uh, but anyway, the, the money thing, obviously, he was so charitable and so kind to the boxers that he was doing this for nothing. Um, so... She was saying that, and obviously there is a sort of a loophole within boxing from how I understand it, that you can be an advisor, but not necessarily a manager. There's some there's some some legislation as such, boxing legislation around managers, but not around advisors. But nonetheless, um, the name that you threw out there and what really should have caused problems was that Diaz. I do know that name because wasn't he the boxer that uh, Moses Haridia um said, well, I'm not standing for this. He came in and he, what I actually wanted to say to you about all those boxers and about Sandra Vaughan, et cetera, was presumably these guys, these girls and, and guys in boxing were being offered something to move. They were being offered more money, we can presume.
0: Right. Yes. So that was my understanding. You mentioned Joseph Diaz. Yeah. So there's an yeah. on, that uh, lawsuit is ongoing. What I find very interesting about that, like as I dug into that one, and this, a lot of people in boxing never really knew this. So Joseph Diaz, we always knew Ralph Heredia as his manager, Moses' brother. What we didn't know was Ralph Heredia was Ralph Bustamante, who was is actually a convicted drug trafficker. So you have a convicted oh. drug trafficker accusing, you know, uh, you know, uh, a non convicted drug trafficker. <laughs> right. So, that, but that, like, you feel bad for a guy like Joseph Diaz because he's stuck in the middle of this. Because I don't know if he knew Ralph Heredia's history. But, you know, Mo, but to, to your point, like, you know, advisors, they kind of get away with not having boxing licenses. They don't get licenses, managers. So Ralph Heredia was the one always doing the work. But Moses Heredia is the one whose name is on the paperwork. So it's not really that indifferent to the other side of this argument. So that I, I feel bad for Joseph Diaz because now he's going back to that situation. He has to, you know, potentially be managed by these guys again. For now, he's still managed by Rick Meridian. Um, Like I said, that lawsuit is ongoing. I know Kenahan, uh finally responded to it after, you know, being found in the fall, claimed he had nothing to do with MTK, nothing to do with all that, but that's, you know, going to be for the courts to decide. So.
1: But Jake, that lawsuit when it was filed by Moses... Heredia, mm-hmm. uh, and that was in 2020. Yes. That, um, amazingly, in, in the States, you get so much information. Like, yeah. crime journalists must have an absolute whale of a time over there because all the information is available publicly. But right. those filings were, um, you know, were very detailed. Yes. They named Daniel Kinnehan as the head of the Kinnahan Organised Crime Group. Yeah. They described that group as a, a drug, a money laundering and... Um, you know, a cartel, essentially, said he was in charge of it. And they accused them of using drug money in the US to come in and sort of, you know, try and steal this boxer. Yes. But at the centre of all that is money laundering, of course, the crime of money laundering. And that's what the accusation was. And in a way, that lawsuit freed up a lot of journalism about Daniel Kinnan. Yeah. Um. And people were able to write about it. They were all allegations, of course, but still it was it was more um it was more petrol to our engines, wasn't it? it what was in it?
0: Yeah, so I give Eric Montavo a lot of credit for, you know, the, he he took he made some very bold statements in that lawsuit. And again, though, but that was another story. It's you, as you mentioned, it's public record. I'm one of the, I think I'm the only writer actually who touched it over here. I know it was big in Ireland and, and, you know, I don't know about England, but I know a lot of Irish uh, reporters I saw really tackled that story. And, you know, Eric was being interviewed all the time, but again, over here, people just like, I'm like, if this doesn't fascinate you, then, then what doesn't like here, you know, again, the other side, you knew these managers for, you know, 10, 15 years, however long they've been in the sport. And it's, it's just still not interesting enough. So I, I guess that speaks to just like how much it's always been that much more fascinating you know, on your side of the Atlantic than over here for whatever reason. But that that part, like, I, I wrote at least three stories on that lawsuit, like, and that, you know, there was just so much to write out of it. I was like, I couldn't believe the information. It was like literally watching, like, you know, like a, a crime movie.
1: I mean, in a way, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it was a, a preview to what came with yeah. the U.S. sanctions because there was similar kind of information being put, put on the public record. Yeah. Um, in the midst of it was something I want to ask you about. It's called the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act because it was cited. So what is that and, and you know, why is it relevant?
0: So it's supposed to be protection against fighters that, you know, managers, they can't double, they can't... Um they can't act as a manager and promote, have like multiple roles. And then like, you know, just basically stealing money from the fighters. So it's, it's supposed to protect um, the fighters, but it's just, it's still, people always find loopholes around it. That's the sad part. So like how it works now is like managers, um, a, a promoter will negotiate with a network and then they'll negotiate with the fighter. And then they have to disclose, well, this much money, you know, this is how much money is on the table. And this is how much money you're going to get. This is how much money we're going to get. Fighters are supposed to be made aware of like old financial terms. So that's the, the greatest protection from it. Its very existence would suggest that boxers are
1: vulnerable and are always being exploited.
0: Yes, 100%.
1: Mm. And that's really at the heart of this story, I think, because it's like um, the adults are fighting right. on top or there's some sort of a really nasty divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and underneath it all are these boxers who are really just trying to make a living, most of them. Right. I find when you see them... Coming out and and defending Daniel Kinnahan and you know a lot of the other silly things they say, mm-hmm. it's nearly part of their vulnerability that they're being told what to say and and a lot of the boxers certainly, um, you know the tradition in bo- boxing on this side of the world is a lot of them are from maybe working class communities, right. they may have you know gone into the sport because it's it's you know rugby and the likes of hockey and that just aren't. Sort of prevalent in working class communities here, but boxing is, right. and their kids sometimes who go in and they don't have parents who are solicitors or big business people. Yeah. They don't have that backup, um, and probably they don't have an education. A lot of them, and you know that does make them vulnerable, doesn't it?
0: It absolutely does. Yeah, that's a, it's a very common theme among boxers, and I've noticed this, like especially with the ones who have defended Kennehan, at least up until two weeks ago. Um, One boxer who continues to defend him, and I'm gonna admit, I actually admire him for doing so, is John O'Carroll. Watching as an outsider, If it wasn't for Daniel Kinahan, you probably still would be in fact you'd probably be retired. No, I would have definitely retired. There's no even two ways about it because I was I was not enjoying my life at the time. He went on record saying how Daniel Kinahan basically saved his life. That if it wasn't for him, he never would have boxed. He don't know what he would have done. He you know, he's had a very sad story and like he's overcome a lot to get to where he is in life. So I admire him. I'm like he's acknowledged that the man, you know, had a, is a, an influential part of his life. You know, whether he knew or didn't know what Daniel Kahan done to, you know, make the money he has. I, you know, I'd I have to grill Jono further, but. But that's it, that is the common theme, though, that these are the type of fighters that Daniel Kinahan seems to find. He found Tyson Fury at his low point. You know, Ben Davidson went on record claiming that he cleared a path for Tyson Fury to do, return to the sport. So, a lot of these guys, like, you know, they'll say, yeah, he did this for me. He, he rescued me from, you know, darkest moments. But it's not a coincidence that, you know, th- these fighters are at that point when all of a sudden, you know, Daniel Kinahan finds them, you know, and brought mm. them aboard, whether it's MTK or just in his own personal advisory role. So, that, you know like you said they're just boxes that are so susceptible to you know being exploited I, I really can't think of another word
1: and in many of the cases as well a lot of them are either convinced or yeah. have been mistreated beforehand or maybe not paid enough or they've certainly been convinced that they weren't paid enough before right. and they may be paid more under his guidance and do you The sums add up in some cases. Of course, we don't really know exactly what everybody's earning. But from my small understanding of it over the years, and I'm talking about since the evolution of MGM Mm -hmm. in Spain in 2012, I would have been told by people who do know boxing that a lot of these guys never would have had a professional career. And they're never going to bring back the book Right. That's been put into them. Is that is that right?
0: I agree. Yeah, that's, I absolutely agree with that assessment. So, um, and again, just you know, my own unfamiliarity from like 2012 really until 2018, I never really paid attention. Like if MTK and well MGM fighters back then if they were at the top of the pay scale, but certainly from like 2018 onward, like they, they caught up in a hurry. So, and um, mm. that's the question that we keep asking. Um, I know like MTK and Pro they weren't sanctions by the U.S. Treasury Department, but two. That everyone keeps asking questions whether or not they're linked to Kinahan. But the biggest question now, well, this is going to be the proof. MTK closed shop. Pro Bellum still has a bunch of shows on the schedule, but it's like, well, how are they going to fund these shows? Especially now if Kinahan's assets in, in Dubai are now frozen mm. and they're cooperating with this, you know, what has become a global investigation. And so like, that's a- be a- the real test.
1: MTK continue with their stance, and even did in their statement right. as they closed to say that they have nothing to do with him. Probellum have done the same, but I think, particularly for MTK, the fact that the company was founded originally by him, mm-hmm. there was never any real way of totally separating from Kinnahan, and obviously the fact that he was advising some of their most you know famous boxers. Right. Um, but going back to the money in boxing, mm-hmm. just briefly, so you know you hear these figures about what Tyson Fury would be paid and how much this how much this fight right. is worth who gets all the money and and where is it coming from okay it's pay per view i actually got notifications on my phone there did i want to through sky right. did i want to pay per view for the uh the Tyson Fury fight it's all very strange considering sky had a go at him this week yes um but they're still going to make some money out of it, yeah? Yeah. And obviously Sky have still continued to employ Matthew Macklin, yes. who has no involvement in crime, but who was the original founder of this right. and was, as I pointed out myself this week, I mean, Macklin set up that gym. If you look at what the U.S. Treasury Department and what was said during the sanctions, Kinnahan was the uh, running a international trans-global crime murderous crime, drug dealing and weapons a shipping industry right. at the time he set up that gym with Macklin right. um, okay so is that worse than that he was an advisor to Tyson Fury I don't know but anyway everybody is mixed up intermingled so knotted together it's like you pull out your Christmas lights and you realise you should have been more careful the year before when you put them back in because <laughs> it's just this big knotted ball isn't yeah. it it is. With the whole lot of them. But the money, like, how much money is there in a big fight? And, and where is it going?
0: So this fight in particular drew a lot of attention because it's, it's um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. When a fight is ordered by a sanctioning body, boxing has very, several sanctioned bodies. The WBC title is at stake for this fight. They ordered the fight. The the two sides couldn't come to terms, so they ordered a a purse bid hearing, which anyone registered with the WBC can bid on the fight. Frank Warren set the record by bidding $41 million. Now at the time, it was made to understand that Warren's Queenberry Promotions and Top Rank merged together to put together that money. So they had to do that because um, Dillian White gets 20% of that purse, which is a little less than $8 million. Um, They're taking out another 10% as a win bonus. So they have to guarantee. So
1: he gets that uh, personally, Jake, or his yes. people get it. Dillian White,
0: I mean, however, he has to split that with his team. They okay. have to hand him a check for just under eight. He's guaranteed just under $8 million um, as his, you know, he's benefited to uh, 20% of the purse. So the, theoretically, the other 32 million will go to Tyson Fury, but I, I think they already arranged. My understanding is he's getting probably closer to 25 million. But again, that money has to come from somewhere. And Frank Warren shows have just not been that successful you know, over the past few years, solely in England. So if he's funding this himself and top rank is not funding it, that's, th- those are more questions that should be asked this week. So, and of yeah. course he's completely denied involvement. He says his money's his money. He's trying to distance himself from, from Bob Aram and top rank, especially after Aram said he was personally paying Kenahan, you know, uh, an advisory yeah. fee for Tyson Fury's fights. You know, they're denying that. Fury denies any you know, acknowledge uh, any involvement in that. Frank Warren, you know, denies any uh, knowledge of it, you know, and he he claims he's on the hook for this fight. So that's, you have to ask Frank Warren, well, where are you getting all this money from? Because like I said, Queensbury shows have just not been that, you know, <laughs> majestic over these past few years. So the 41
1: million, so what comes in then, you know, from the pay-per-view and, and I presume there's like all sorts of stuff. There's, there's, you know, merchandise and everything. The big claim is that they
0: sold 94,000 tickets at uh, Wembley stadium, which, you know, if that number is verified, it's a boxing record. So they'll make money off of that. Um, I believe it's 25 quid in, um, in the UK. It's, I want to say $75 uh, US dollars over here. So that's, I mean, it's a lot of money to, you know, to, to make back, you know, even over here, like it would have to sell about 800,000 pay-per-view buys just to, you know, break even, you know, assuming there's no other costs involved. You still have the undercard, you still have the production, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of money. So,
1: so Jake, 94,000 tickets sold in Wembley at £250 pounds mm-hmm. per ticket is about, she says, as if she hasn't done this calculation, uh, £23.5 million. Right. Okay, so we'll take that off the 41, and then twenty five. uh Pounds for each pay per view. How many of those are we looking at?
0: Um, if you could ballpark and maybe say it's going to make a million. That's, that's being very optimistic. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's another 25 million. Right. So he's over his 50, 41 million. He gets back about eight million. So that's before he pays for Wembley
0: Stadium. Right. And pays um, the distributors. Right.
1: Yeah, that doesn't seem too much.
0: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, boxing. It's it, we always ask this question, you know. And it's funny. Bob Aram of all people has the most famous quote: "In order for someone in boxing to make money, someone else has to lose money," because that seems to be the case with nearly every single event. Like for the astronomical purses that are being paid, and you know the ticket sales that are coming back. That's the question we keep asking when we don't get answers to: Where is the money coming from? How are How are you making money if you're spending this much money?
1: And have these purses gone up in value since the, you know, the advent of MTK into the market?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ah. Yeah, it was before them too. MTK, you know, was one of many contributing factors to driving up the price in boxing. So they're not solely, but, you know, also they've helped, you know, freeze out a lot of people. Like they worked their way into top rank. They had the deal with uh, ESPN until, you know, Disney finally cut their, cut ties with them. But, I mean, that throws out a lot of other promoters. It's like, you know, as, you know, these promoters get these network deals, other promoters, you know, who used to get a date or two are now left out and they have to negotiate through them in order to do business. So, Mm. you know, again, MTK wasn't the driving force behind it, but they played a significant role.
1: Okay, right. Well, maths isn't my strong point either, uh, along with the boxing. But none of that adds up for me now properly about the amount. I mean, even just the amount of security and stuff that would have to be paid for Wembley Stadium, and um, anyway, we'll we'll move on from that because I will make a massive big mistake if we continue on the figures. (laughs) Um, So, what is? The reaction in the U.S. to the sanctions was that a big story.
0: Yes, hundred um, percent. So it came out Monday. Um, I remember I wrote my. I have one. I have one good connection with the U.S. government, and I tried to verify a couple of details. I wrote my story Monday night. By Tuesday, I, I can definitely say a lot of people were talking about it. But again, a lot of writers, their first reaction was to go to Bob Aram. Now I get it. Bob Aram is the one who had the relationship with Kinahan, with MTK, so he's a, a person to naturally quote. But to also tell the story from his side is a bit, you know, I, I didn't like it, you know, for a lot of reporters who it was their first time really addressing this story, but nobody has okay. ignored it. You, you just, you can't ignore it. There are some writers, I'd say there are a lot more writers who are covering it now than who are still con- uh, choosing to ignore it, but it is a massive story. And this week it's gotten even bigger, especially I think yesterday news with MTK, um, I found weird. Like I thought too many people were celebrating. I, I get that, you know, okay, yes, Daniel Kinahan is finally suffering. But like I pointed this out yesterday, MTK closing up a shot. That, that's not the end of the story. There's still a lot more work to be done. Boxing still has next to no transparency. And that's, you know, a reason why someone like Daniel Kinahan was able to work his way into the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I keep asking questions. How far does problem go? So to, to me, in my opinion, Thursday's development with, um, you know Dubai now and cooperating. You know freezing their assets and cooperating. That's become you know a, a lot more people are paying attention because now everyone over here is asking where does Daniel Kinahan go? Where does you know if if these companies are tied to him? How do they continue to do business? So um, this week, yeah, a lot more so than last week, and last week definitely a lot more so than at any other point since his name has really been mentioned in the sport.
1: I noticed it made it into the New York Times. Um I think it was Daniel Kinahan's first outing. I have been speaking to a journalist over the past few years from the New York Times who's been sort of working away in the background on something. But, you know, the biggest newspaper in the world, you obviously have to have a really big story to get in there. Um, But it made it. And uh, to me, that was definitely the the US had sat up and started taking notice about this. Um, And, of course, as did boxing, because really this story's been rumbling along and... Everybody claims they, they, well, not everybody, but many people are claiming they knew nothing about this until the U.S. sanctions and the announcement. But yeah. the fact of the matter is it's really until the finances are, are troubled, isn't it? And that's what yes. the U.S. sanctions have done.
0: Yeah, I've always said that in boxing. That's the, you know, when people are no longer profiting from something. That's when something all of a sudden becomes a problem. And that's exactly what's going on here. Once they realize their pipeline has been cut off. Now it's an issue. Now they're willing to cooperate. Now I can't believe what this guy has been doing. It's like, well, that's not what you were saying for the past two, three years. Like John Hans, who's been fantastic with his coverage for the, I believe it's the Irish Mirror, uh, that's right. Yeah. He, he spoke to Byron last September. <laughs> but mm. um, quoted the same reporter, was quoted by the same reporter saying that he had no idea where this money was going. He wasn't paying Kenahan, that if, if he paid his fighters and his fighter paid Kenahan, that's their business. He went from that last September now to, yeah, we're, we paid this guy $8 million for Tyson Fury's last four fights. So that's always been the amazing part that, you know, they just, everyone has been so comfortable lying about their you know, relationship mm. with relationship. With Kinahan with MTK, now all of a sudden the truth is coming out.
1: And as a crime reporter, what I hear from that little piece of information is where did that money go? Where's the bank accounts? How was it mm. transferred? What country was it moved to? Yeah. You know, what company was perhaps used or whatever? All those questions remain. You know, it's OK for Bob Arum to say there was eight million dollars transferred. But where where did yeah. it go? And. Um, and he did, and um, not to cut you off,
0: he did mention one of the three companies that was um, sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department, I believe it was um, Hope Ho, hope,
1: hope, hope, hope. Hope, hope that it went through that. Yes,
0: yeah, that he claimed that he paid them and then that went to Kenahan. But the fighters who are linked to that, like Michael Con- Conlon specifically, claims he never heard of them. Um, they still reference Jamie Conlon as a client. Jamie hasn't fought since, I think, 2017. Uh, Patty Barnes is a client with them. He hasn't fought since uh, he retired last year so. Mm. again, there's still more questions to be asked. And that's my problem with it. It's like, we have to keep working on the story. It's just like every, it seems like every day there's a new interview and it's like, every answer that comes out, we have to ask even more questions now.
1: Yeah. And it also seems to me that uh, there's nobody saying, ooh, this is horrific. This is awful. Yeah. Nobody's saying that.
0: No. And that's, see, this is where I appreciate, especially, you know, our esteemed reporters like as yourself that are like watching this story. It's like, cause we've become so numb to like what goes on in boxing, like so many things that happen. We're just like, Oh, well that's just part of the sport. But when other people start paying attention, it's like, Oh man, we really have to get our stuff together now. So we need that watchdog because we've proved long ago that boxing is incapable of policing itself. And, you know,
1: Jake, I'm just thinking as well, you, you, we talked briefly about Diaz and the fact that, you know, he, he's stuck in the middle of this court case. Yeah. But, like, boxing now knows that a man named by the U.S. Treasury Department as the head, essentially, of an international mafia was in the middle of boxing. Yeah. So what does that mean for those boxers? I mean... Is there a body that looks after them that wonders, were they threatened? I know how these guys work and they work with threats. Yeah. They, You know what I mean? You're like, I'm not trying to be funny, but there can be offers that you can't refuse. Of from course. Them. Yeah. And, and is there anybody suggesting that the boxers, anybody linked with them or, you know, who has been involved around them or anything should be maybe, you know, reached out to asked, you know, have they had any trouble? Yeah. It has there been some abuses, you
0: know? Right. So again, the only one I've heard so far is, you know, we keep going back to Bob Arum. He's the one, you know, the only one said he, he claims that like MTK and even Kennahan himself tried to strong arm them to a certain degree. I have yet to hear that from any fighter there are, if any fighter has spoken about him so far, they're still defending their relationship with them or their friendship with them, I should say. Um, I have yet to hear anyone say that Miss uh, Kennahan or even anyone in MTK has mistreated them. Um, I'm very good friends with Jamel Herring. I, I mean, I was surprised when he signed with MTK. Like, I just casually texted him like, Jamel, is this true? And he told me, yeah, I understood why he did it. He felt like he needed, um, he felt like he was being wronged going into the fight with Carl Frampton. He needed, you know, additional resources, you know, on his side. So, but he ceased his uh, uh relationship with them. I believe it was after the Shakur Stevenson fight last October, shortly after that point. So maybe by November or so he was no longer with MTK, but he never complained about them. He just said like, you know, the relationship kind of ran its course. And I don't know if they didn't need him anymore. He didn't need them anymore. But you know, I, I'm closer with him than just about any other boxer. And he neither on or off the record ever, you know, complained about them for, and so yeah. um I haven't heard that part with the with the fighters. I don't believe I, I do believe However bad he is that maybe, you know, he did try to look out for them. And there's even a lot of people that are no longer part of MTK, obviously, that want to move on to the next phase of their career. They're still trying to look out for the fighters because, I, you know, they want to see them at least land on their feet safely.
1: I, mm. I wouldn't expect any of them to talk publicly about something like Absolutely. that anyway. Um, but I wonder, should boxing create some sort of a... <laughs> Sounds a bit hippie, but some sort of a safe place, maybe where they right. could te- they could speak about that. Is there anything like that in boxing? Is there any sort of care given to the boxers
0: through? Well, again, and like we have, you know, the Muhammad Ali Reform Act in place, like, like that should you know provide greater protection for boxers than what is the case. But th- there's always people who just find loopholes around every rule that's in place. So even if you know you have your manager that's going to deal with the promoter, there's nothing to stop the manager and promoter from colluding to. You know, still find ways to stick their hands further, deeper in a, in a fighter's pocket. So, um, I, I do believe you know a lot of fighters without you know, not literally wrapping you you know your hands around their throat. They they still feel like they're in a place where they have to accept something, or else they're just not going to fight. So, and it's hard, like especially in the U.S., we it's not federally uh, like there's not one main governing body. We should we have the Association of Boxing Commissions that should oversee the sport as a whole, but they just kind of cherry pick when they want to get involved in the sport. Their last major move was, you know, trying to uh, disband the sanctioning body, but, you know, they're not, they're not doing their job. They don't have, that's the problem. Nobody that has the power to really control this industry, you know, really sinks their teeth in and tries to protect. Because again, you know, you know, it just always, it just seems like in boxing, the circus just kind of packs up and moves to another part of town. And that's, I I think it's always going to be the case in my lifetime.
1: It sounds similar in the UK. There seems to be kind of like, not as much joined up right. forces together, and it seems to be quite disjointed and everything. Um, just two other things I want to ask you about. Um, firstly, how do fans take the news, or do, do you know how they feel about
0: it? Or is there a lot of disappointment out there? And um, it, it's weird. we live in such a, a boxing is such a toxic industry, so it's hard to get a real read on how people truly feel. Like there's some who care, they they claim they just care about the sport. They're sick of hearing about the story. They don't care where the money comes from as long as there's good fights. Others who seem aware of the story are like weirdly celebrating the news. Like, oh my God, look, you know, the the building is on fire. It's like, you know, like people just, you know, take glee in a disaster. So it's, I I don't know if like anyone's truly grasped, like, you know, what is, what is happening. So the thing I find ironic is like, we always talk about, you know, crimes and you know, the mafia, or whatever. But like, if you encounter these people for real, you're not going to have the same reaction that you would, you know, you know, going on Twitter or whatever. So, you you know, you'd be terrified, you know, of, of meeting these people. So I, I think they just need to have a firmer grasp of reality to really, you know, understand what's going on, what should be going on in the sport.
1: Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll take a while really for, yes. for the whole, the whole story to settle and for people to actually consider what has happened yeah, um,
0: uh, the thing I'm curious about is like once these TV deals reshape, like I said, the promoters who had these deals, like that, that no longer are going to have the resources to move forward. That, I think that's when reality is really going to set in. You're going to see a lot of fighters who are going to be begging for fights and signing with these other promoters. I think that's when people really understand what has happened in these past two weeks.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Yellen, mm-hmm. what's your thoughts on him? And uh, I'm just wondering, I know he he sort of Managed to step down, step aside, retire, and say he was very proud of what he did just the day before MTK went wallop. Uh what does he do? Moves back to the States and sort of blends into oblivion or what?
0: I don't know if he got a severance package for stepping down or whatever, but I don't know if he has like enough resources to where he just kind of rides off in a sunset. My understanding was that he took the position with MTK just because he needed that opportunity. So it's, you know, again, it always seems like, you know, these fighters that sign with with Kenahan or whoever, it's like these guys, they're in a bad situation and they say, okay, well, I need to make a living and they agree to something that isn't the best decision at the time, but it it keeps them afloat. But you don't think about the long-term repercussions. So, and it's just because Bob, you know, he was elected into the Hall of Fame. Um, The panel that votes on that, I'm not a part of that. So I'm not going to say whether or not I would or would have, but he's had a pretty incredible body of work in boxing. But unfortunately, he's going to be remembered for the last three plus years of his uh, you know, role with MTK. And he was carrying, I believe he joined them believing maybe, okay, he, he's a good guy that can, you know, kind of turn them around and, you know, help, you know, clean up their image. But that's what boxing does though. They take good people and they just, use, they have no problem tarnishing their reputation for the sake of, you know, hiding in plain sight. Um, so Bob, like he went in there thinking, you know, he could do better things and Wound up, you know, he, he wound up telling their lies, really. You know, he, he claimed this in 2018 that they were no longer involved with uh, Daniel Kinahan, that he had nothing to do with the company. Then in 2020, they went again. Daniel Kinahan is no longer. It's like, well, you said he was no longer involved two years ago. Then in 2020, he's saying they're no longer involved again. And now in 2022, this now they go back to saying he wasn't involved since 2017. It's like, well, you keep saying he's no longer involved, but yeah, he, you know, that's that's the problem. It's like, you know, but again, he's in that situation where I guess, you know, he's being told what to do, but he made that choice to join them in the first place. And that's the thing I don't understand with a lot of these promoters that are linking up with him. It's like you have to know this is not going to end well.
1: It's interesting because from Daniel Kinahan's criminal trajectory, he has had to keep a lot of people on the payroll, a lot of people who are serving time in prison and who are away from their families and who he doesn't want to talk and that's why they continue having to be paid and in actual fact there's so many of them now between Ireland and the UK that I, I had heard in recent times he was finding it difficult to actually get the cash in to the country to to pay them all but um, he's now got a kind of a double whammy has he not because there's a five million dollar reward there for anybody who can bring you know who can bring in information that would um, lead to his the demise of his business and presumably his you know Look, it's a criminal offense in the states to money launder and that's what he has been accused of. so um you know he's got a, a double whammy there with anybody he's worked with in boxing who may have been down on their look or may be down in their look and may now see an opportunity to uh, to pocket a few bob
0: yeah, absolutely especially with the walls closing in now like you know with um with Thursday's rolling, you know uh, of you know his assets being frozen it's like you know he's running out of places to go so people might feel a little safer now, you know being you know, the more confident in telling the truth so i mean we're seeing it over here with a few people so uh, someone brought this up too like we just had a massacre in new york city where they had the massive subway shooting i don't know if it made it way to mm-hmm. ireland but like the reward for finding that suspect was infinitesimal compared to you know the, the reward on daniel kenahan's head so that speaks to how seriously the u.s uh you know government has taken you know kenahan's you know uh, uh, accused crimes so I, I do believe at some point, so there, too many people have to know the truth and the wrong, well, for him, for us, the right person, for him, the wrong person is eventually going to make their way to the U.S. government. That's a lot of money to collect, especially, as you said, if, you know, you have not been paid what you're supposed to get paid. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There's an inevitability to his end and there always has been in a way. Um, can I ask you finally to just call the fight? <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: the tonight's fight is that, um,
1: is that the war is that the worst question ever no, to ask just, i'm just so
0: soured on the fight um and, and i don't mind sure a lot of people like that's the part they, they okay this is over we get back to the boxing like i'm just like i'm not at the point where i could focus on the boxing yet um there's so many weird elements to it uh D- dillian white is a proven contender um it, it's just hard to pick against tyson fury he's he's proven to be the premier heavyweight of the 21st century so i'm I'm going to have to go with him probably by late stoppage.
1: Yeah, and do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go the opposite because when I saw him the other day yeah. speaking from my absolute zero knowledge of this sport, <laughs> I thought to myself, he doesn't look like he has his head in the game.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, there's definitely a cycle. This is, he's, this is the most rattled I have ever seen him. So that's, you know, a big part of, you know there was a part of me that just believed we were never going to get to tonight. Like, um, I don't know if, you know, he was just going to get frustrated, walk away, retire again. I was waiting for like another failed drug test to pop up. Mm. So Mm. that's like, I just never, for some reason, I just never fully um, invested into this fight. So, um, yeah, it's very sad. I would not mind seeing Dillian White win tonight.
1: I mm, will live at twenty dollars somewhere from my last trip to the states, stuffed okay. in a drawer, and I'll uh, we'll we'll go with that. we we'll, we'll have a wager. I I'm I'm up for uh, Tyson not winning. Okay, and <laughs> you're going the opposite, yes. and we shall reconvene. How about Absolutely. that?
0: That sounds very good.
1: <laughs> All right, Jake Donovan. Thank you very much. Yes,
0: thank you so much. Really appreciate this.
1: You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.